morning we find ourselves in Romans chapter 8, a single verse for the day, and that is verse number 28. Oh, what a beautiful verse it is. Verse 28 begins by saying, and we know. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that every aspect of our lives is in the hand of our God. We know that every aspect of our lives will be divinely used by the Lord for His glory and for our good. So Paul says, and we know. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. There's so much to unpack here. Let's begin with the phrase, all things work together for good. This this verse kind of develops a thought that was introduced to us back in verse number 27. Verse 27, Paul emphasizes that the Spirit's interceding on our behalf is carried out in full agreement with the will of God. So everything that happens to us in this life is directed towards that goal. So while the all things that we face in this life are not always in and of themselves good things, God promises that He will make them work together for good. So suffering still brings pain. Suffering still brings loss. It still brings sorrow. But under God's control the eventual outcome of our suffering will be good. And so while these moments may not be good experiences in themselves, God harmonizes them together for our ultimate good. The verb there, work together, is translated from a Greek word, synergeo. Synergeo means to connect into group means to shape and to forge. It means to move and to operate, uh, to arrange and to influence. Once you notice that that verb is also in the active present tense, which means that this is a continual activity of God. It's always happening. So uh, it literally means all things are continually working together for good. So so may you never forget, God is actively involved in the lives of His children. Day by day, moment by moment, God is arranging and rearranging all things for His glory and our good. So the present sufferings that we experience, the present sufferings, those are the things that Paul is referring to. And so these struggles are, in a sense, a blessing in disguise. Because the sufferings that we face in this world are used by God for His glory and for our good. Now this doesn't lessen the reality that suffering is horribly tragic and extremely difficult. Therefore, like when we see another believer who is suffering, we ought not 
walk up to them and be like, hey, man, you're suffering. Man, that's so great. Good for you. It's going to be so awesome. Hallelujah for your suffering. No, no, that's not, that's not our response. Our response ought to be, when we see someone who's suffering and struggling, what we ought to do is to stop, to pray, and then to figure out, by asking and pleading with God, what is it that we should do in order to address this need in the life that, of our brother and sister that we see struggling with something? Can you imagine what that would look like if that's what we would actually do? That we would stop and pray and then figure out what our response should be. Far too often, we, we, we don't even make it past the, the praying part. Far too often, what happens among believers is a declaration or, or, or a statement gets said, something to the effect on, I'll pray for you, without actually taking the time to pray for them. No, we, we should stop. And, and instead of saying, I will pray for you, like sometime in the future, why don't we just stop and pray right there, right then, in the moment? And may our prayers always lead us to consider action on our part, right? Because that individual might intersect in our lives at a divinely appointed time so that God's miraculous provision in their life could be given in and through another one of His children. And so, uh, this is not in any way trying to say that suffering is so great and so pleasant. No, it's, it, it's tragic. It's, it's difficult to endure. But what Paul is saying here is that God uses these things and He triumphs over them. He, he brings victory out of them. He adds them together for our good. And so while our suffering may be painful and difficult to endure, we should be comforted by the reality that God sovereignly rules and reigns in and through all things. May we never lose sight of that beautiful reality. Now, it's extremely important to realize that there is a limitation that is put in place about this generous blessing. All things don't work out together for for good for all people. Not at all. No, it says God works all things out for good only for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. And so, let's. What what do they mean? What who is He addressing? So let's start with the first one: for those who love God. This wonderful promise is not made to everyone. It is limited and is given to those who love God. Now, that phrase is not intended to make some type of distinction among believers as though some love God and some don't. No, that that, that phrase is given to distinguish between those who believe and those who don't. And so no matter what happens in our lives as children of God, the providence of God uses it for our benefit. So sometimes this happens by 
delivering us from the tragedy. Sometimes it happens by allowing us to endure or to journey through the tragedy in order that we might be drawn closer to our Father. Scripture testifies to this reality. It's happened before. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. Moses speaking to the Israelites, and he said to them, He led you through the great and fearsome wilderness by its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty grounds where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint. In the wilderness, he fed you manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. So the Lord didn't lead his people through 40 years of difficulty and hardship in order to bring them evil. No, he did it in order to bring them good. And let's be honest, sometimes the, the good that we receive is received in and through divine discipline. Even when our outward circumstances are difficult and demanding, God is always working in and through our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So in and through all things, God is ultimately preparing us for glorification. And that is the ultimate good to be experienced by His children. We should realize that there is a powerful and a very profound lesson to be learned here. And that is that God uses the evil of suffering as a means to bring good in the lives of His children. Sometimes the suffering comes as the price that we pay for faithfully and obediently walking with our Lord. At other times, it's simply the hardships we face because we live in a fallen or, or a sin-soaked world. There are times that the suffering comes by God's direct and divine permission. Think of the life of Job. It was Job himself that declared the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of our Lord. Sometimes our suffering is a result of divine discipline for our disobedience. So no matter the type or the circumstance of our suffering, James admonishes us in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. James says, To consider in all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance, and let perseverance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want you to think about the lessons that we often learn 
through those seasons of suffering or those difficult circumstances that we journey through. Sometimes it's in those hard seasons of life that we begin to truly see the beautiful picture or examples of things like kindness, sympathy, humility, compassion, patience, gentleness. In those seasons of suffering, we truly learn about God's faithfulness and His great love and care for His children. Let's be honest, there are a few things other than struggling and suffering that will actually bring us closer to God. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter tells us, he says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore strengthen, confirm, ground you. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that good news, church? I mean, how many of us long for the day when we are fully and finally restored? When we are fully and finally strengthened, confirmed, or grounded in Christ Jesus? I mean, the supreme illustration of God turning all things out for the good of His children, is seen in the sacrificial death of His own Son. Think about it. In the crucifixion of Jesus, God took the most absolute evil that Satan could devise, and He arranged it and rearranged it and turned it into the greatest blessing that we could ever experience. The salvation of our souls. And so there's this limitation that's put in place here. God works all things out for good for those that love God and for those that are called according to His purpose. Now this phrase does not refer to a different group of people, nor does it refer to a a subgroup of people within a, a a group of believers. No. All those whom God calls according to His purpose love Him. And all those who love Him are called according to His purpose. So at this point, I think it would help us to understand that there are several ways in the Bible where that term called is used. So let me share those with you. The first one is what we would call the external call of God. The external call. This is the call that God gives for sinners to repent. This is the message of the gospel. The the gospel of God is a calling for man to repentance. And so when the gospel is proclaimed, a call goes out that we should repent and submit and surrender our lives unto Jesus. But today, it's almost as though we soften this call. And think about the language that we often use in churches today. After the the preaching and the proclamation of the Word of God, churches today 
typically would extend what they might call an invitation. Inviting someone. The invitation is a very poor word to use in response to the Word of God. That word invitation carries with it a a moral right to either accept or reject it. It is not the same thing uh, to be invited to do something in comparison to being commanded to do something. If you invite me to do something, I can't or I don't have to do what I've been invited to. If I've been commanded to do something, then there's only one response that is appropriate, right? And, And so God does not invite us to repent and be clear god doesn't invite us to repentance he commands it scriptures declare that acts chapter 17 verse number 30 says god is now commanding men that everyone everywhere should repent and so we need a constant opportunity to repent Uh, We need a a consistent reminder that we are obligated to change our lives and to commit ourselves unto Jesus Christ. That's why after the preaching of the Word here among us, we won't offer an invitation. No, we will provide you an opportunity to repent and respond to the Word of God. What you do with that, you, you are held accountable for. And so, this external call where God commands people to come to Christ in faith and repentance is crucial to our understanding of the New Testament. In fact, the Greek word that's translated as church, the Greek word is ekklesia. Ekklesia literally means called out ones. So the church is literally those who are called out. Those who are called out from the world and joined together with the kingdom of God. So there's this external call. And then there's an effectual call. Or some refer to it as an internal call. The external call is for all of humanity. After all, the most famous passage, perhaps in all the scripture, declares that for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So the Gospel is to be proclaimed to everyone. But, and we've already seen this in Romans, because of our sinful nature, no one will turn to God without God first impressing Himself upon them. In in theological terms, this is what we would refer to as regeneration. Regeneration. And only God gives regeneration. And regeneration occurs through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the proclamation of the Holy Word. And, And so Paul refers to this effectual call when he writes in Philippians chapter 2, Verse number 13, and he says, For it is God who, has, who is at work in you, both to work, both to will and to work, 
for His good pleasure. And then Jesus Himself, He speaks about the necessity of this effectual call when He says in John chapter 6, verse number 44, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. And so we have this external call that is to go out to all people everywhere. And then there's the effectual call. And yet there is another way in, in which the Bible uses that term, call. And in fact, we, we've already discovered this a year ago, mind you, when we were in Romans chapter 1, verse number 1. So it's been a long time since we've been back in Romans 1, verse 1. right? But if you look back at the very beginning of this letter, Paul writes, he says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. And this is what we were referred to as a vocational call. A vocational call. The vocational call holds the belief that every human life is to be lived under the authority of God. Do you believe that? Every life is to be lived under the authority of God. If you believe that, then then that has profound implications upon your life. And truly believing that, that means that the career that you pursue or the job that you take is to be in conformity to the will of God under the authority of God's leadership in your lives. Therefore, work, no matter what kind of work it is, is worship. That ought to change your mindset when it comes to what it is that you do. Work is worship when it's lived under the authority of God. Vocation. A divine calling. Our lives are to be fully dedicated to God. Whether we're serving as ministers or missionaries, or whether we're serving as a farmer or a carpenter or a teacher, an artist, a musician, a nurse, a doctor. No, every one of us has a vocation. Every one of us have, has a, a divine calling of God. And we're to carry out that calling for His glory and for the kingdom of God. Well, that mindset should shape who, who, who we are and what we do with our lives. And every one of us, all of God's children, have this divine calling, and God will release you from that divine calling when He calls you home to glory. Which means, as God's children... We are to serve and to be served. It's God's chilling, it's God's children equipped with the Holy Spirit's presence. God has given each of his children some gift to be used for his glory. Some means of service that they should be actively engaged in. And yet, it's the dilemma that every church faces is such a lack of volunteers for for service. 
it's widely said that, you know, 20% of the church does 100% of the work. The 80% of the church would be more consumers rather than contributors. I'm sure you've heard something like that in the past. Maybe in churches it's more of 90% versus 10%. It, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I think sometimes it's just our misunderstanding on the calling of God on our lives. Or sometimes we just get into this mindset on, well, that's why we have pastors at churches, and that's why pastors receive a salary, so that they can get paid to do what I don't have to do. Well, well if we read the Scriptures clearly, pastors are, are called to prepare and to equip the saints to carry out the ministry of the church. So every one of God's children should be actively Involved in some type of service, some type of ministry. And, and if we lack the ministry that God has called and equipped you to lead, then we need to start a ministry so that you can lead it. But we have plenty of opportunities for you to be engaged in service right now. We have two large gatherings every week. We have the, ga- the gatherings for Sunday morning, and we have the one on Wednesday night. Man, how awesome it would be if this turned out on Wednesday night. How beautiful it would be. But it's not happening. And it's not just happening here. It's not happened anywhere that I've ever experienced. There's such a, a, a drop-off, and I, and I don't understand. And maybe it's because we, we, we fail to realize how, how important it is for us to serve in the church. Not just to attend, but to get plugged in with fellowship, with studying God's Word, and then putting that knowledge to work for the glory of God. I personally think that everyone should take the mindset of attend one and serve one. And Sunday morning is a day for you to attend, a day for you to be actively involved in a Bible study group, to develop that, that biblical knowledge in that fellowship, and to come into corporate worship. And that's the day that you just consume, and that's not a bad thing. But then Wednesday night could be an opportunity for you to contribute, for you to serve. Other people would take it the other way. I, I, I kind of take in on Wednesday night, and I like to serve on Sunday mornings. But how awesome would it be if we just embraced the idea that we're going to give and we're going to take. And we're going to do both as God's children. Every one of us has a calling from God. And I hope that you can see how this verse is meant to give us comfort and assurance in the midst of the hardships that we face. Because the reality is that if you are in Christ Jesus, may you never forget that the, through the adversities that you face, God is actively at work in your life. While you may not see it, or while you may not understand it, God is actively working. He's arranging, He's rearranging all things for good for His glory and for our benefit. And Paul summarizes this in verses 29 and 30. He says, Because those whom He foreknew, 
he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We will unpack those verses next week. Now, confession, I don't know if we'll unpack them all next week. There's a lot there. And there's some major terms that need to be understood. It would be really cool if we got through it in one week, but I begin to look at things and say, oh, we got to unpack the foreknowledge of God, the predestination. What does that mean? What does it mean to be called? What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be glorified? Oh, there's so much meat that is right there. We'll begin the process of unpacking that next week. This morning, we'll stop there. And what we're going to do is an opportunity to repent and to respond to the Word of God. This morning, you're going to be invited to participate in communion. And here's how it's going to work today. In, in just a moment, I'll pray. And as after I pray, uh, Joel will begin to, to play. And as we worship through singing, uh, this is your time to come and to take the elements should you be prepared to do so this morning. There will be no formal instructions or there will be no take it and wait for me to walk you through it. I'm about to read some more scripture for you in just a moment. And you'll be invited to come and to receive it if you're prepared to receive it. Now, for those of you that are limited in your mobility and getting down here to receive it, uh, it could be challenging to you. We've got an answer for that too this morning. If you'll just simply raise your hand where you are, then one of the deacons or elders will bring you elements to you. We just need you to raise your hand so that we can see you, okay? With that being said, let me just read a, a portion of Scripture to us. It comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read the whole section here. It says, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when I come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together in the same place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each of you takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. For do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was being betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. A man must test himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will direct when I come. After I pray, the Lord's table will be open and available for the children of God in this place and for those that are rightly prepared to partake of it. I would seriously reflect upon your life, repent from your sin, so that you can take this as an expression of worship, declaring the death of our Lord and the promise of his return. And just so you know, in the corner on the table, for those that are gluten-free, we now have some gluten-free options for you. My mind goes back, and as having been around some families that are gluten-free, I began to to realize, oh, how tragic for them not to be able to participate in communion because of that health issue in their lives. And so we will offer an opportunity for you uh, to, to take and to receive. Should that be the appropriate response? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your love, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this church. God, I thank you for the glorious promise that you are actively working in the lives of your children, working all things out for your glory and for good. God, as we reflect upon our lives in this moment, I pray that your spirit would bring conviction upon us, that there would be the repentance of sin, that there would be a a renewal of commitment in our lives to to honor you, to, to serve you, and to, to love others. Whatever needs to happen in this place, in order for us to be in a right relationship with you, oh, Father, I pray that you would just make it happen. In this moment, Father, we celebrate the ordinance of the church of the taking of the Lord's Supper. We thank you for the blood of our Savior, the body that was sacrificed. God, help us to live a life that truly reflects the gratitude that we have for your love and for the salvation that you provide. May you be pleased by what you see from us 
as we respond to your word today. In Christ's name I pray.